This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello, and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Suzanne Yatim Aslam. Suzanne is a former actress in this era of USA. I was so paranoid I was going to screw that up. Uh, turned writer. Her personal experience with postpartum depression and anxiety left her feeling alone and confused. In her book, Postpartum Me, she addresses the dark thoughts that so many mothers have but are too scared to say out loud. She's thrilled to get this book into the hands of mothers who may be struggling with postpartum depression and anxiety. And here today to talk about her life and her book is Suzanne. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Suzanne. Thank you, Mike. I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh, I'm so excited to have you here. Um, first of all, what's in that cup? Iced coffee, but I pretend it's hot because I love coffee cups. <laughs> I only have water, so I wish I had something with some caffeine in it this time of day. But um, before I go on about myself, let me ask you the question I ask everybody to begin, which is, uh, Suzanne, where does your story as an author begin? Uh, it was, nobody's ever asked me that before, so that's fun. Um, <laughs> it, it was 2019, and my husband and I and our kids were, we were um, trying to get out of the heat, so we went to Seattle. We live in Phoenix, we went to Seattle, and we're staying in this cute little house in this cute, quaint little neighborhood, and um I was trying to think of where my life goes from here. I had just come out of postpartum depression and anxiety and I was sort of settling down. And as I settled down and sort of reevaluated what life is like now, I, I got kind of angry because I really struggled and there didn't feel like, I didn't feel like I had a safe place to express those struggles because everybody's postpartum can be different, but mine was like, Oh, Sammy ruined my life. The, his existence made my life difficult. And I was so cool before. And now I'm not. And now I'm just some loser mom. And, you know, you know, you have these horrible thoughts that aren't true, but they feel very, very real. And so anytime I try to express it, it just, it, it's such an ugly thing to say. So when somebody hears you say that, people are like, ah, they don't know how to respond. Yeah. So, um, it made me feel like a bad person. I felt like a monster. I felt like a terrible mother, all those things. So I stopped talking about it. And so when I was, when I'd come out of it around 2019, I, I was really angry that I had these re very real feelings and I didn't have an acceptable and appropriate place to put them. So I was kind of reevaluating my life and I had read a book by Hal Elrod called the miracle morning. Have you ever heard of it? I have not. 
Uh, it's, it's, it's a really good book, very quick read, just about like how setting your mornings up for success helps you set your life up for success. And then we started talking, my husband and I about visualization. And so if you can see like, okay, what do I want my life to look like moving forward? If I had my dream, what is that? And how does that look? And so with those two ideas of like, okay, where does my life go from here after the children? And now that I'm better and I can do anything I want, what does that look like? So I sort of, I started writing stories because that's how I process things. And what I love to do, if I, if something happened in my life that didn't end well, I'll write it down and I'll change this, the ending. And it kind of, it's just sort of therapeutic. Yeah. So I started writing and then I realized through my visualizations that I actually wanted this to be real, that I wasn't doing it just for me, but I wanted to put it in the hands of moms who maybe felt the same way I did, but felt like they couldn't say it out loud. Um, so it was very therapeutic for me, but the the goal was to not let them feel like they were bad. When you were going through postpartum depression, did you recognize it as such or did you just feel off? No, I didn't recognize it. I had never been depressed before. So it didn't occur to me. What, why would I be depressed now suddenly out of the blue? But the problem is correlation was causation. So the same time I became a mom was the same time I got depressed so for me, I was like, oh, this is how it feels to be a mom. So being a mom is bad. This is, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it, was, it was, so I didn't recognize it. And I had spent months and months and months just being really, really upset and miserable and depressed, ha having no idea that there was actually a deeper rooted issue. Yeah. yeah I asked that because you know, we are the parents of triplets. They are 20 years old now, but when they were babies, uh, my wife you know, and she says this now, she's like, well, I, I think I was depressed. Um, mm -hmm. she had always struggled with some form of anxiety, you know, ever since she was a kid. But, um, and I realized I, I probably shouldn't be sharing this without her here, <laughs> but she's, this is what she shared with me. Um, but she didn't like characterize it as such. Like she didn't know it was only like looking back years later. She's like, my goodness, I was, I was depressed. Like when the kids were babies, um, right. and you know, looking back like rear view mirror, I'm like, I, you know, I, I, it's hard to disagree with that because of just how she was behaving at that time. And, you know, she was definitely, her personality was quite different than it was, you know, prior to becoming a mother. Yeah. My husband says the same thing. I could tell he would be looking at me trying to find me. And I just was, I just wasn't there. I was a very different person. And that's a really hard thing to reconcile. Yeah. It, it messed up your marriage. Because suddenly you're not like, you're not dealing with a, a, a a person who can speak logically or can explain themselves or you don't understand what's going on. And there's just tension there. Plus the tension of just being tired and sleep deprived as you very well understand. <laughs> yeah. The sleep deprivation. Cause that's what we would think, you know, cause we didn't sleep. I mean, the kids were born. So to put it in context, our kids were born nine weeks early. They were, um, you know, oh, they were 31 weekers. They, the, the biggest one is three pounds, 10 ounces. My son, who was the smallest was two pounds, 10 ounces. And, you know, they didn't, I could say this now cause they're adorable. Um, you know, they're all very good looking and well-adjusted kids, but they look like lizards. I mean, they didn't look like human beings. <laughs> they, it was yeah, weren't done cooking, were they? No. So you think, oh, okay. It's, is it the sleep deprivation? Is it the fear? Um, is it the anxiety of something's going to happen? Um, you know, what if they don't develop the way they're supposed to? So there's all these like big questions and, and the elephant in the room was that there's maybe something chemical going on here. Um, mm -hmm. but, um, how did you like in those earlier days? I mean, you know, you mentioned 
sort of writing, you know, vis visualization, but how did, how did you and your husband deal with it? Uh, it while I was depressed? Yeah. Oh, at first it was really hard because we didn't know what was happening. So I'm just this, I feel like a crazy person who's just spiraling. And um, my husband didn't know how to help me because he didn't know there was a problem. He just thought like, oh, she is not adjusting well to motherhood. Um, so he used to keep an eye on me and he, he works. I mean, like I could walk to his office, but sometimes he'd work from home and our tiny little condo, he would find a place to work and he'd be like, oh, I have a light day. So I'm just going to I'm just going to work from home and hang out with you and the baby. But really he was keeping an eye on me. I found out later because he was genuinely worried about, is she going to hurt herself? She's going to hurt the baby. I don't know. And I'm, I'm just too scared to, to risk that. So, um, it was really weird because he couldn't say any of that to me. So he just had to watch me. Um, and, uh, we, we, there was a lot of tension between the two of us because I was so irritable and I would just get really angry. And then he was, he's busy and he's an entrepreneur and he's you know running his own company. He's not home when I need him to be home. And I'd get really angry. Um, and the disparity of like the, the, the labor distribution of the children of the child at the time was, um, it was just so like, you know, he wasn't home and I, I didn't know how to deal with that because you're supposed to be this person who just like, you're a woman, you're a goddess, you just know what to do. And then I didn't know what to do. And, and I struggled so hard with feeling like I'm, but I'm supposed to understand my child. I'm supposed to feel like I got this. I'm supposed to know how to nurse him. And I don't know how to do any of these things. And I have no, I have no help. So I felt really, really alone, even when he was there. Um, and I would, I never said any of this out loud. Um, I just I sort of silence because I, I imagine then those like feelings of guilt must must like compound on you because you know you, you're taught to believe like you know I, I just think about like pop culture right you become a mother these are the happiest days of your life you should be happy with your baby everyone knows what to do mm -hmm. um and then when you realize that okay well well that's not true it's not true for me there must be some feelings of guilt there it was like straight up anger at first, because I felt like everybody had lied to me, you know, like any, all of the, the talks about like, oh, your body just knows what to do. And you're just like female instincts and all that shit. And then like, sorry, am I not? No, no, that's fine. That's fine. We, we could, we can <laughs> fuck whatever you want. I mean, this is, this is your show. Um, okay, good. I appreciate that. So <laughs> I'm, I'm dealing with all that. And I, and I'm, uh, I just am so angry. Cause I'm like, dude, like everybody talked about here's how to take care of the baby when he's inside of you. And here's how to push the baby out. But then you bring him home and like, they're just like, okay, like here, deal with it. And I didn't know how to deal with it. And it was things as basic. This is what got me so angry. I remember um, my midwife, she was like, okay, it's time. It was time to push. And she's like, okay, bear down. And I didn't know what that meant. I did not, I had never heard that phrase before in my life. And so I didn't know what that meant. And then I didn't know how to push. Like I tried to push, but it didn't feel like she had to tell me when to push. And I remember being really upset because you hear these crazy stories about like a woman gave birth in the car because she couldn't help it. And she couldn't, she like, she had to push. And I'm like, well, why is my body failing me? Like, I can't do the one biological function I was supposedly born to do is just push out a fucking baby. And um, so I, I remember just like being really angry at this whole narrative that has been shoved down my throat my whole life about how women just know things. And then I, I didn't know the things. And so I felt like, an, I felt incomplete. I felt like I wasn't a full bona fide woman or a full bona fide mother. And that really, that really messes with your head. Um, 
So that was, it was anger more so than anything. The guilt for me came with having negative feelings and then knowing I shouldn't feel that way. So it was like, oh, I feel guilty because Sammy didn't ask for this. And here I am mad at him. And then also feeling guilty because I have a really good life and I felt very ungrateful. Um, I live in a resort town. You saw it my window. It's very nice. Um, I live in a resort town. It's very, my parents are immigrants and life was really hard for them and I have everything. And so I'm like, why am I complaining? Like, stop being a baby, you know, is how I was interpreting it. Cause I didn't know I was depressed. So I thought I was just being, you know, an ungrateful and a baby and I couldn't handle the hard things. And so I was fighting with myself constantly about how I was feeling. Yeah. So when, when did you feel things turn around for you? After I had my second baby, Ronan, they're two years apart. Um, and after I had Ronan, maybe like five months later, we sent Sammy to school um, for like three half days. And then Ronan would nap before we picked Sammy up from school. So there were like two hours in the middle of the day where I didn't have any children with me. And enough time had gone by. I mean, this isn't healthy that, you know, this much time went by that at this point, we're like two and a half years in. Um, but enough time had gone by that. Like my, I was sort of settling down and sort of getting used to things. And, um, and then I'd have a two hour break in the middle of the day. And Mike, that for me was huge. It wasn't like a, Oh, the kids are at bed and now it's 10 PM and I can wind down. No, it, I got to recharge in the middle of the day. And I remember like, I had my last panic attack sometime after we started sending Sammy to school and then I was done. And I really think it's because I had time to myself and I, and I used the time wisely. I didn't always, but now I was like, I need to fix this, you know? So I'm going to do the things that make me happy. Even if that means I don't shower or the dishes aren't done or whatever, but I'm going to sit and read and drink my coffee. Cause that's my happy place and fuck everything else. And yeah. I was able to recharge. So the second half of the day I could, I could function again. Yeah. It's um, like learning like a little self-care behavior or something. It sounds like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell, tell me about sort of the motivation behind writing this book and, and kind of when you started writing it and, and, and why. So I started writing it in 2019 when I started, you know, doing those visual visualizations about what I want my life to look like. And it was kind of the idea, Mike, that my life can look like however I want it to look like. So I had done a very terrible thing and I had judged all moms that came before me. And I had this very specific idea of what a mom looked like and how she acted. And I didn't fall into that. So then I judged myself and judged them. And so this book was more about like, look, you're going to just do it however you are going to do it. And however is best for you is what's best for your baby. So I wrote the book in the form of um, journal entries. So it's my, it's my story. It's a memoir. And it's in the form of journal entries because the point was, is I couldn't say these dark thoughts out loud. So I wrote my journal entries. I love writing. I used to be an actor and I love stories so much. So um, even though all of the stories are real, the dialogue is something that I just created while I was writing it. And it was just so, it was so fun for me to create those. Um, but then I just got to be really, really raw and really, really honest and say all the bad things. And sometimes it's the good things, which was kind of the fun part about the idea is because you, when you're depressed, it's, you're not in a constant perpetual state of sadness, right? Like sometimes you'll have bad moments and good moments and ups and downs, just like everybody. So sometimes Sammy would do something cute and I'd love it. And so I'd write that down in my journal in the, in the, the fake journal for the book. Um, 
because that's what it's like. It's like, it's just a lot of back and forth. And then the next day I'm like, I hate this. I wish I never became a mom. I need this to be a dream. This can't be real. Please wake me up from this dream. Um, so there's just like, so you kind of feel the spiral, you feel the back and forth and the tension and the, and the sheer like confusion about what's going on. Um, and I wanted that for the mom so they can, you just feel heard and seen. Cause that's kind of how it is. You know, I'm sure your wife, even though she most likely was depressed, she wasn't like moping around 24 hours a day. No, there wasn't a lot of, there was definitely not a lot of moping. Um, it was more just kind of emotional and just kind of feeling out of sorts. And yeah, because it was such a, a, a dramatic life change. Um, you know, we were immediately playing zone defense versus, you know, <laughs> man to man, you know, whatever. I'm Is really bad with sports analogies. Reference. What's that? Not the friends reference. Is it a friend? I'm not so sure. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. They mentioned that in friends when they're watching the triplets, Phoebe's, Phoebe's nephews and nieces. Oh my God. I totally forgot that whole storyline um, <laughs> in friends. Now I feel like a loser. I should know that somebody who like was a young adult in the nineties. I, I just, I'm really obsessed with the show. I've beaten everybody in a trivia game. It's, it's, it's like a point of pride for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, now I know not to go up against you and it, yep. <laughs> if, you're talking, if you're talking Columbo, I could probably get you, but not uh, <laughs> definitely not friends. Um, you know, I'm just thinking li like listening to you, like tell the story, um, you know, it, it does require a lot of vulnerability. I mean, I think writing in general requires whether writing fiction or not fiction, you know, authors, writers, we have to be vulnerable because if we're not, we're not going to tell an authentic story, but you know, with you saying, you know, just kind of ad admitting to, um, really admitting to the world, um, like feelings of guilt, feeling like, you know, you're not a full bona fide mother, um, kind of negative feelings because you shouldn't be feeling what you're feeling, but admitting it, you know, that takes a fair amount of vulnerability. And I'm curious, um, you know, what, what, what has been the reaction to that? And then on the other side, like, how has that been healing for you? Um, the reaction has been really, really lovely. There's been people who will say, oh my God, if you take out my, your name and put in my wife's, that's her story. And then there's moms who would say, even like people who are now grandmothers will say, oh my God, if you take out your name and put in mine, that's, that's my story. And no, they're not married to a man named Kasim and no, they don't live in Scottsdale. And no, they didn't go to this event that's in the book, but like all the feelings are so, they're just so much more natural than people allow. Um, and so it's really cool that people can see themselves in, in the story, um, which was the goal. I just kind of, it's not, I don't offer medical advice or anything. I just kind of want to hold your hand and be like, I know it sucks. Doesn't it? Isn't it terrible? I totally get you. It's fine. You know, and we'll like, we'll figure it out. We'll work through it. So um, it's been really fun to see, to see that reaction and know that it's actually doing what, what I wanted it to do. Yeah. I mean, in, in that way, like writing, it, it seems like started off as being very therapeutic for you personally. Um, but it sounds like it's become very therapeutic as well for your readers. I hope so. And it was, it was therapeutic. Even just recently, I was looking back, I have a, a talk I'm doing next week. And so I was looking through my book, trying to grab some talking points and, um, I got really sad. I was reading the chapter, just kind of skimming over the chapter of where I talk about, um, the day you give, you give birth, they give you, you get to decide between the red pill or the blue pill, the whole matrix thing. And, um, the blue pill, you'll just like be in bliss in heaven. And you won't know that we're stuck in this, in this matrix, or you can take the red one and you can see what life is really like and how we've been lied to. And I wrote how I took the red one 
And I can't believe I did that and how I'm just seeing everything so differently and how I can't allow this to be my reality. And, and reading those thoughts, like reading that and knowing that that's how I really thought in hindsight makes me still, he's seven and a half and I still get, I can get really sad just thinking of, I'm going to get choked up. Um, just thinking about it. Cause I love him so much. And to think that I ever had those thoughts about him is really, really heartbreaking. So like, I'm okay. But sometimes when you just look back, you think of like, look at all the time that I lost having those, you know, those feelings towards him. Look how like I couldn't connect with him and I didn't feel like I loved him. Um, and that's just a really, really hard thing to admit, but I, I don't think I'm very special. And I think if I have had that, then other people have too. And it's such a hard thing to say out loud. So if I could say it out loud for somebody else and sort of give them that permission, um, then it's, it's worth it to, to be that vulnerable. So part of what you're telling me is that you're the Neo of moms. Oh, oh my God. Where's my trench coat? Oh, that's so cool. If we could just digress for a moment, because there's a franchise that where the first movie was so good. And then two was okay. Three was not great. And four. Watch four. I did. It was an utter disappointment. Uh, And I hate to say, because I think it had such a cool visual look. Just the way he looked in that movie, you know, I can man crush on Keanu Reeves for a moment, Absolutely. but with the long hair and the beard, I'm like the guy, you know, he was kind of John Wicky, yeah. but, but man, what a, just a, I'm so disappointed the movie. I know it's, it's always really frustrating when they're like, oh my God, this makes so much money. Let's jump on that more. And it's not about the story anymore. It's just mm. about oh, how can we pull in viewers? I hate that. Yeah. I mean, they could have stopped after one. They really could have, and it still would have been so monumental. Now, I'd I'd feel really bad if you told me that you were actually in, you know, the second or third or fourth ones. I wrote the fourth one. How dare you? (laughs) How dare I? Well, you know, maybe maybe stick to writing books about postpartum. You know, you mentioned you were an actor. Just you want to talk about that for, for a moment? I mean, I'll get back to the book in a second, but I'm just curious about, you know, how you go from you know, uh, sort of, um, you know, Miss Arab USA to, to being a writer to, to, then being an actor. I Uh, I was an actor first. I did like, you know, stage and in college and local in, I grew up in St. Louis. So I just did like local theater. And then, um, I moved to Phoenix after college and this is more of a, a film town. I mean, there's theater here, but there was a lot more film available to me here than there was in St. Louis. And so I got myself a commercial agent And so I would do commercial work. She's the best agent. Her name's Ruth. And she's just, I think she's been here like 30 years. Um, And then I would do indie films on the side and most of them were terrible and I hope you never see them, but it was so much fun. And I love what I love about it. Honestly, I'm like, this is a part of, I'm, I just started going to different therapists and this is actually something I talk about where like, I really love being another person. I really love diving into somebody else's story and living that life for a short amount of time and trying to like get inside other people's heads and understand why they make the choice that they make. Um, and I think a lot of it's probably because I don't understand humans. So I want to understand like, why are people like this? You know? So to play a character who's flawed and messed up and annoying, or I don't like her or whatever, and then try to like not judge her and just be, be her and try to understand her. I really, really like doing, um, even if the movies were shit. But uh, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. You'd stay up and you'd watch the sun, the the sun come up, and because you're just all, all night making movies. And I don't know. I loved it. I loved it. I only stopped after I had kids because it was just too hard. 
Yeah. So you're telling me I should not put your IMDb link in the show notes? No, we're going to avoid that. <laughs> well, I will say just, you know, mentioning that you're from St. Louis. Um, I can't let this slip. Uh, two things. A, uh, the great John Hamm, also from St. Louis. Uh, um, he yes. is probably your crown prince of, uh, of St. Louis when it comes to acting. Um, but B, what is that cheese they put on pizza in St. Louis? Because I heard it's not normal. Oh yeah, I can't remember the name of the cheese, but we have a, a a franchise there called Emo's Pizza, and we just have our own our own thing, and it's so good. And people actually like try to get it shipped over here. I've met people that live here that are from there, where you could actually like have it delivered because it's that. It's just so good. It's so good. I don't remember the, name of the cheese, but it's wonderful. Yeah, because it's not mozzarella. So my Italian the, the half is um offended. Question- <laughs> it's offended and it's questioning um the sanity of people in St. Louis, but. Um, you seem to you're you're part italian we fry ravioli and we call it toasted ravioli second rally behind a fried ravioli it's really good but i didn't know it was a st louis thing i just thought that that was like doesn't everybody eat that at lunch at school oh no oh no 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 No. they used to have uh i used to go to bennegan's (laughs) when i was in high school we thought we were so cool uh (laughs) we go hang out at bennegan's and and drink root beer because it came in like beer bottles oh yeah but they had a toasted ravioli on the menu that was um was actually quite delicious. I don't think I'd like it now because I'm 48 and not, you know, 16 anymore. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I digress. <laughs> um, I do always like to uh, have some uh, fun with my guests. Um, and uh, one of the ways I like to do that is through uh, understanding pop culture a little bit more. So what I'm curious about when you were growing up, Suzanne, what were some of your favorite shows to watch on TV? What do you call growing up? Okay, well, let's say when you were a kid, um, eight to 12. Okay, I think I was really into like Captain Planet. I kind of a little bit liked Power Rangers and I really wanted to be the Yellow Ranger and I did pretend to be Trina. Um, And Full House and that Cosby show, is that what it's called, the Cosby show? Cosby show, sure. Which makes me sad now. Um, I know there's a lot of Cosby guilt out there because so many of us grew up like you know yeah it sucks but still the show's good and you have to give like it's still good oh he was my one of my if not my favorite stand-up top three stand-ups um yeah growing up watching bill cosby still Uh, quote stand-up oh i can quote bill cosby himself all day long so Um, every time i make a cake i think of him and his whole thing about cake right how it's breakfast (laughs) <laughs> dad is great give us a chocolate cake <laughs> and then the kids turn on him um well oh, you-, oh, you know my mom used to make us watch i'd watch like who's the boss with her and mama's family and three's company oh, oh so good did you ever so- watch um what was it was a three's a crowd the follow-up show no yes there was a follow-up where jack and whoever he married um they got married. He opened up a restaurant called Jack's Bistro. And I think like the, the tension was like his wife's dad moved in with them or something like that. Like, I don't know. Okay. There was definitely a Mr. Furley type character. Yeah. Look yeah. up the crowd. I don't think it lasted too long, but it was definitely a thing. It's that whole sequel business that we talked about earlier with the matrix. Yeah. That's right. That's right. It wasn't, it, they didn't, it didn't strike fire. Like, you know, happy days spun off like three other shows. Um, so did, um, was it all in the family spun off a couple of shows too, but uh, that were successful, but yeah, not so much for three's company or three's a crowd. 
spinoff. Happy Days spun off. Um, oh, uh, the Charlie. No, the Vernon Shirley. Um, and uh, Mork and Mindy. No way. Those are Happy Days spinoffs? And there could have been a third spinoff from Happy Days. But yeah, Mork and Mindy definitely. Because um, Mork for Mork uh, appeared in Happy Days a couple of times. And then Laverne and Shirley, definitely. And there could be one more that I'm forgetting. Oh, Joni Loves Chachi. But that wasn't too popular. Oh, really? I felt like it was. Joni Loves Chachi? Maybe. I don't know how long it lasted. I don't know. Uh, I only caught here and there on TV land. There you go. Um, any, uh, obviously, friends um, when you were oh. a little bit older. Uh, any other, like when you were older, any other shows that like you couldn't not watch? Uh... I watched a shit ton of Friends, man. I'm trying to think. What else did I watch? I watched a lot of Harry Potter. I'm a big Potter head. Mm. Big time. Um, it's in my book. I talk about it. It's a thing. Uh, oh my gosh, what else? What did your kids watch? Your kids were way younger. What did you watch? Um, all right, so to really date me, I have a twin brother. We were addicted to shows like Chips, um, yeah. Emergency, um gosh we would watch love boat <laughs> the love boat. that's right we made another run uh we used to play love boat um oh, don't, ask. Fun. <laughs> don't ask um what else and then um happy days um dallas we used to stay up late for because we love the theme song to it um i mean we were definitely children of the 80s like that was yeah. you know we you know were embarrassing sure I have watched General Hospital my entire life. My aunts and grandmother, my grandmother doesn't speak English. So my aunts and my grandmother and my mom, we'd all like be watching it and I was little. And my my grandmother would always be like, what are they saying? What's happening? And she'd be really interested even though we had to translate everything. And it sort of just became this thing. Like we just, this is what you do. And now I do it because it's how I connect with my sister. And she has a disability. And so for her, like her whole life revolves around GH. And so like, I still watch it. And then we get on the phone. We're like, Oh my God, can you believe what happened? And it's just sort of become like a just tradition for us. It's but, nothing. It's nothing to be embarrassed about. I watched guiding light yeah. regularly. Um, <laughs> Cause my grandmother lived with us. Um, so like, you feel like through high school really? I'd from school. And if I didn't have like practice or like a rehearsal or something, I'd be sitting there in front of the TV watching the CBS soaps, you know, and guiding okay. line. I could tell you, you know, Philip and Alan Michael Spaulding and and anything going on, you know, in the Spaulding universe was uh, was fair game. You know, you want to hear an embarrassing story? So when my grandmother, when I was really young, so old Italian grandmother, right? They they, they do things unconventionally. So she would sit in front of the TV, and she, she would get a bucket, um, and she. She would shave her legs like in front no of the way. And, and to God, and to God, she gets up to go to the bathroom, comes back to find me shaving my legs. <laughs> and she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. It's like we're watching the soaps. This is what you do when you watch the soaps. And I'm like, I thought we were bonding here, grandma. <laughs> now go toast me some ravioli. <laughs> All right, enough about me. Oh my God, I love that. What about music? What did you listen to growing up? Oh my God. So I, so I like at home, we listened to a lot of Arabic music. Um, and then uh, I grew up with a bunch of emo kids, but like pop emo. So I was like 
nothing to do with emo pizza. No, that's emos. Oh, sorry. There's well, like a... punk rock stuff. So yeah. we like Fallout Boy and and Breaking Benjamin and Panic at the Disco and The Used, Taking Back Sunday, Blink One Eighty Two. Like those were those were my people. But my dad taught me classical music, Frank Sinatra. I know everything there is to know about the Beatles because it was a ritual every Sunday. We'd listen to the Beatles for an hour and then he would tell me, did you know things? Did you know? And then he would just tell me all sorts of things about Ringo. And um, so, yeah, I felt like it was like kind of well-rounded, but I was definitely in line with the emo kids at school. So that's what I did. Did you watch that um, nine hour documentary on the Beatles? No. It was on Apple TV. Yeah, it was Peter Jackson found like, I don't know how many hundreds of hours of footage um, that he cut down to nine uh, leading up to, you know, the big concert they did like on the rooftop during an album release. I'm going to really butcher this, but uh, if you're a Beatles fan or maybe your dad, um, give him a heads up about it. It's really good. It's interesting. Apple TV. Apple. I'm pretty sure it's Apple. It's either Apple TV or Disney. It's one of the two. Okay. Uh, You know, you'll, you'll see Yoko knitting a lot. She's in it knitting for some reason. Not adding any other value to, you know, what's going on around her. Like composing, let it be. And Yoko's like knitting a sweater. <laughs> it's uh, kind of funny, but not really. Um, one person can be. Yes. Um, what lessons did you learn the hard way when going through the publishing process for this book? <sighs> that I am not a Kardashian. Um, because if you're not a Kardashian, people don't give a shit about you. It doesn't matter that you have a better story to tell. Um, and it's just a really weird world that we live in, you know, the whole like celebrity status business. So, uh, and and what I really learned is that I actually, that I, I made, you kind of get imposter syndrome, Mike. It just, mm. you're like, oh, I have a story, but it's my story. So you're like, why would you care? Uh, you know, and, um, and I have to remember that I tried to remind myself that it's so much bigger because I'm trying to connect with, other moms who were struggling. And somebody told me like a couple of weeks ago, um, she goes, I'm in the middle of postpartum right now. It's just somebody who found me on Instagram. And she was like, and I know that when I come out of it, I'm going to be able to attribute a lot of that to this book. And I'm like, oh my God, people actually like, they're actually feeling it. And that's so, it makes you want to like, yeah, it humbles you. But then you're also like, wow, I did a thing. And you just feel really, really proud. Um, but when you're trying to publish it, you don't feel that way. You just feel so small and, and kind of, kind of worthless. So I did all, all of it on my own. Um, I went to 99 designs and I found somebody who could make the book cover. Um, and I found a guy on read Z that formats it. Um, and anyway, I just kind of like figured it out and I stumbled through it, but now for my next book, I'm, you know, I'll know what to do and it, it'll be, it'll be a lot easier, but just the process of like realizing how unimportant you feel you could feel during all of that is humbling. It's it's humbling, and there's a fair amount of persistence required. Um, you know, especially if you're if you're trying to find the agent and go like the super traditional um, traditional route, because you know, I could literally I could literally wallpaper my office with um, you know, I could replace these corks with rejection letters, you know, from from agencies and agents and. Yeah, the same thing. And every every once in a while, you get one that says, hey, I really like what you said. It's somewhat more personalized. Um, And that's that's like a win. <laughs> you know, it's it's sad, but that's like a win when you get like a personalized rejection. Uh, but then I'm super skeptical. I'm like, but did they mean it? 
And then I just don't believe that they even liked it. <laughs> There's your imposter syndrome coming back to haunt. Oh, big time, big time. Um, but it's true. I mean, most authors, even, you know, I, I talked to authors who sold 40 million books. They feel the same way with each book. You know, it, there's something about it that just never goes away. There's just such a, to your point earlier, such a level of vulnerability. It's so personal. It's like, Hey, I made this art. Do you like it? And, and you just, you're seeking the approval of other people that makes you just feel so exposed, especially if it's something like a memoir where it's super personal and I'm giving you like just, uh, oh, here's a, a fight, a real legitimate fight that my husband and I had where he said, do you want to just leave for a year, take some money and go and I'll watch the, I'll take care of the baby. I'll hire someone. Do you want to just go? Like I put that in the book and that's the really, really private personal thing. And now I'm like, do you resonate with it? Do you like it? You know? And that's so, ugh. yeah, but it's, it's striking a chord with so many people. I hope so. Yeah. Um, lastly, if you could write a letter to the younger Suzanne, um, you know, maybe it's, you know, the Suzanne who's, who's just a new mom. Um, you can pick whatever, you know, age you want to be, but, uh, what are some words of advice you would tell her? Not to take things so seriously. I'm, I, I'm, 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 uh, calm down a little bit in this idea, but I just think that I've always taken things really seriously. I'm the eldest child of of immigrants, like I said, so I, there was just a lot of responsibility on my shoulders, you know, to help around the house and with the kids. And, um, and I just felt like everything I did was, was judged and looked at. And if I did something wrong, my sisters would, people would look badly at my sisters too. And so I just felt all this pressure to never, ever enjoy myself and play. And if I could get my younger child to just play more and realize the importance of you know, laughter and giggling and enjoying life and playing and, and kind of that inner child thing that we all seek. Um, I wish she had that. I really, really wish she had that. Yeah. It's like you, we, we all have inner children. We all have to feed those inner children, but it sounds like you, you almost like when you were a, literally a child, um, you were taking life a little seriously. Yeah. I never got to play. So I can't access her now. Cause she just like, uh, I don't, there's no mechanism from like, oh, I'm going to pull out old Sue's like, no, old playful Sue's didn't exist. So it's, it's now I'm trying to learn how to access that. Um, it's weird. Right. You may or may not be able to find that at Disney world. Uh-uh. I was there in December. I did not find it. I found a cranky old lady who just did not want to be there. Oh, so many people in the lines and it's wildly unnecessary and it's stupid expense. No, I'm angry. I'm angry. Just thinking, thinking about it. It's like happiest place on earth, my ass. <laughs> you know, oh my God. Honestly, get rid of all the people and maybe it'll be the happiest place on earth. It could be. You never know. You never know. Well, uh, listen, this has been a fun conversation, Suzanne. Um, your book is called Postpartum Me. Um, and where can people buy it? Oh, well, there's lots of local places here in Phoenix. But for those of you elsewhere, it's um, on Amazon. All right. Amazon.com or uh, go uh, fly out to Phoenix. Fly out to Phoenix and go to uh, some local bookshops, uh, likely in Scottsdale. Yep, with all the resorts, you'll be very happy here. Uh, Suzanne, if people want to follow you on social media or visit a website, do you have anything you can share with us? I'm the most active on Instagram. It's Suze Yatim Aslam. All right, there you go. Uh, and we will not direct anyone to your IMDb. Is that correct? <laughs> 
just want to torture me a little bit. That's fine. Oh, you know, come on. We like to have fun here on our Cork News. <laughs> uh, well, this has been a fun uh, conversation, Suzanne. Thank you for letting me uncork your story. Thank you. It was fun talking to you. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.